Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. Today on the program, I have Mike Hardy. And Mike Hardy is the board chair of the International Leadership Association, uh, who has a conference coming up, and we're going to explore that. It's a new, it's a new domain for the ILA. And he's also the professor and founding director. Uh, and he's also a professor and the founding director of the Center for Trust, Peace, and Social Relations at Coventry University in the UK. Mike is an economist by training, and he is leading a leadership organization. I'm going to say that one more time. And he is leading a leadership organization. He has extensive experience around the globe of trying to make a difference, of actually engaging in the activity of leadership. And so this conversation today is going to be a wonderful one. Mike, what I would love to hear from you, well, you could say a little bit about you, but then also, how does an economist end up leading a leadership association? Yes, it's, it's partly your fault, Scott, as you, you may, may well recall. I've been very fortunate in career terms of, of quite an eclectic journey from when I was a young economist through to uh, joining the Foreign Service and spending a good few years as a diplomat in, in different countries, different places, different contexts. And during that journey, I think what came across is that what I had in my toolbox, my original economics training, was simply not enough to explain the experiences and the observations I was making. I've been lucky in a sense that I've always been an acquisitive mind. I've always wanted to learn more. So I ended up really focused on, on society's main challenges, the relationship between people. And that yes. took me into all sorts of places. But one of the places it took me was to Arizona State University, to my good friend Mansoor Javidan, who we struck up a relationship. He leads the Global Mindset Institute at ASU in the Thunderbird School. And he and I got off very well and, and we're looking at some of the challenges facing him. And Mansoor has done a lot of work in leadership. And he persuaded me to look at the International Leadership Association as a new home, as a new place for inspiration. And I joined about five years ago and I ended up chair. So uh, something went well. So <laughs> I'm not sure why, Scott, we could look at that. But you know, Manso, I said, I don't know anything about leadership. I'm not a scholar. I haven't read all that literature that I know has been developed. I'm not a practitioner in the sense that I don't help other people lead more effectively. Mm. But, he, but he interjected. He said, no, Mike, but what I see and what I experience with you is you are a leader. Wow. And so there must be a relationship based upon that that we could explore. And, and I suppose we haven't looked back. We've that's absolutely right. The ILA is an amazing organization because it is able to convene both the academy, practitioners, policymakers, as well as those who are active leaders themselves. 
Exactly, exactly. And it's it's a wonderful organization. Uh, there's a there's a let's start there actually because yeah, sure. so what have your observations been as you've kind of moved into this space? And and I want to get to your your experience because your experience is sure. incredible <clears throat> on the global stage. But yeah. what what has your experience been as you've entered this space? What are some two or three observations you have about about leadership maybe and the the, the academic side of this whole conversation? Sure. But then also the so, practitioners. So I worried a lot initially that leadership was becoming a subject and a discipline where where there was one way and there was one definition of a good leadership. And indeed, there was a, a, a lack of real understanding of the difference between leadership and leaders. Yes. Uh, so I worried about that. My observations were that the the scholarship around leadership has been dominated in in the West and particularly in North America. That mm-hmm. has a cultural consequence for our general understanding of leadership, generally, because we frame leadership within neoliberal democracies, within accountable corporations, within huge NGO and charitable sectors. When, of course, the world is far more complex than that. And we're being led by tyrannical authoritarians in different places. We have people seeking out and looking for much more humane, collaborative leadership in other places. We have divides in the world that, that I've lived through and experienced that, that that original model of leadership, you know, coming out from the, the Ivy League universities of North America yeah. may not fit and may not work. And that, that I became fascinated. And then I found within the leadership community represented by the ILA, far from this, there was an enormous understanding of the diversity of understanding that was required, a huge scholarship around followership yes, and around inclusive leadership, around purposeful leadership, and a humility in the sector, which I have to say has been hugely impressive and very emotionally engaging. There's mm. a humility among those interested in more effective leadership that is, for me, is a very positive thing moving forward. Without that humility, we'd be left with an arrogance of scholarship, which doesn't help anyone. I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, I think one thing I love about this topic is that it is so expansive mm. that uh, horrible, atrocious, terrible evil individuals have risen to, to positions of authority and, and leadership and uh, wonderful, great, well-intended individuals have served in those roles and engaged in that activity. And there's no one size fits all. And each context is different. And then also the fact that we can look at this, this topic through so many different lenses, mm. we probably can, we probably can equate some fundamental concepts from economics I know I'm asking you that right on the top. <laughs> I'm kind of springing that question on you. But as you think about economics and you think about looking at leadership through the lens of economics, are there some concepts that, that connect for you? Well, I think that economics itself, of course, is a highly diverse scholarship in its, in its own right. Yep. But the mainstream neoclassical economics suggests that relationships between variables can be measured and monitored. Mm. And the, the Austrians brought us algebra that allowed us to do the differential equations that I used to love and do lots of. But, you know, there's a relationship also to leadership that there are some ingredients. If we identify all the different components 
of successful leadership. And we tick off those. We can soon find those ingredients that are missing that might help us explain why something's not functioning in the way that it should. So you talked about tyrannical, authoritarian or bad leaders, bad people. Sometimes they're very effective leaders. Yes. They're just leading in the wrong direction for our moral values, for our crusade for and the champion of human rights or whatever. I think this this I did bring for my economics. You know, I can be an expert and tell you the right thing to do. Mm. But will I at the same time tell you the right way to do it? Uh. So let's do the right thing, but let's do it in the right way. That's a combination of of science and need and humanity and need. Mm. So let me give you an example. We know how important it is to grow wealthy economies so that we can achieve more as a society, so we can look after our population better, so we can provide more essential services. We know the importance of wealth creation and the dignity that people who have jobs will have. We know all that. So the right thing to do is to pursue wealth and to pursue the growth of the economy. But goodness me, there are so many wrong ways of doing that. The ways which create more inequality, more exploitation, more child labor, more lack of health and safety legislation, more abuse through media. So it's an obvious example, isn't it? There's the right thing to do to grow our wealth. And golly, there's a right way to do it, one yes. which, which focuses on some of the core values and human rights. I think that applies throughout leadership just as it does in economics. So we can look at some of the most successful leaders in the world, and they don't always deliver the potential. They're not always measured by their success in terms of the results but they're measured by the success of the way in which they relate to their followers. Yeah. And it's quite interesting. And there are very few, I think, leaders who do the right thing in the right way and that stand out. When they do, they're amazing role models and you want to dismantle them and explore how they're made up and, and what chemistry has led to their, uh, their achievements. Mike, would you 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 you've spent a career working around the globe, whether whether that's in the Middle East or elsewhere, uh, helping perform negotiations with parties with vastly different interests. You've been you've received awards for that work, hmm. and what you just said was very very powerful. I, do you have a story of a leader who stands out to you, who in the process of maybe some of those negotiations? stood up and did the right thing, the, the sustainable decision, the right mm. decision. Do you have a story that comes to mind for you in, in, over the course of your experiences? Well, yeah, a, a few. There's always a risk of telling stories that somehow we're pointing to best practice or, or whatever. But I think sometimes stories are great because narrative is the way you learn, you explore and question. But let me give you one that's quite controversial. Okay. Um, that may be of interest. And my my preface is that I'm not taking sides in telling the story. Okay. So I worked for a year of my life as a young economist. I was an advisor in the Middle East peace process at a time between the following the Oslo Accords and the trying the implementation of peace in the Palestinian territory. And I worked in Ramallah in the bunker of the Palestinian National Authority in in the same building as Yasser Arafat, who was the leader and the president. And I saw him almost on a daily basis. I was a young economist. I took no sides then and I take 
can take sides personally, but I took no sides then in my role was as as somebody trying to enable, trying to help through expertise, Good. whatever. I saw a leader there and I learned a great deal from observation. Here's a leader that some of us worry, some of our colleagues worry is a terrorist, not a leader. He's not a statesperson. Putting all that aside, Yasser Arafat was a leader of his people mm. who had an, an innate ability to do something that I hadn't seen before. That is someone who looks very clearly straight ahead. What he sees is what's in front of him. Mm. But Yasser Arafat did that in bucket loads, but also looked peripherally and looked around and occasionally looked over his shoulder to make sure that everyone was keeping up. He mm. was an astonishing practice leader. He was someone who led very effectively and mobilized a followership, which was quite remarkable. Many of the followers in terrible circumstances with little hope and little future and little destination for their families, but nonetheless respected his leadership. Mm. Now, I also observed and in really the most ineffective leader in the sense that his followers were going nowhere fast. He was not achieving the steps forward that you and I would measure as probably a necessary thing to do. Sure. I was in my first overseas posting. I was a young economist, but I watched somebody who had the, this enormous rapport with his followers, was a really strong leader, but got a little lost about where he was actually leading his people to. Huh. And this, this, you know, the, the history books will write a lot about uh, that time, and we've had lots of progress and lacks of progress since then. But that's what I observed. What it's what it focused in my mind was the importance through leadership of caring about the security of your people, the safety of your people. And people ask me why you're why I'm now focused in peace studies, why you're looking at, at scholarship that points towards a positive peace for the world. Because ultimately Scott, it's the peacefulness of our existences, our families, our neighborhoods, our communities that really matter. So yeah. all the other stuff that goes on, if it gets in the way of peace, I get concerned. So I, I measure the effectiveness of relationships between leaders and followers by how much peace and security follow their actions. What are you seeing? What are you seeing on the global on the global stage right now? What what do you see from your perspective through that lens? So I think we have some real difficulties. I think we have a leadership that doesn't really get it, that doesn't really deliver on those aspects. I see a world that is less secure for ordinary people than it was, not because of nation states going to war with each other. We know that's a, the conflicts of the past, but I see a very insecure existence for most people, very precarious contracts of employment, huge inequality amplified by the current uh, pandemic and health situations, big gaps between the global south and the global north, between finance capital and labor. You know, so we something's wrong. And I and I look at the challenge of leadership in that context and, and my current work is 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 looking at the, the, the big challenges facing the world and whether leadership's up for it or not. Yeah. Or what kind of leadership do we want? Um, I think about that a lot. I think about yeah. that a lot. I, I get in some conversations with, with colleagues. Well, I have two things I want to explore with you. One, I'm going to say it before I forget. I said on a recent podcast, I was having a conversation with Dr. Tony Middlebrooks from the University of Delaware. Mm -hmm. He's an ILA member. 
Mm. And I was just, I, I, I've been reflecting on this and I don't have expertise in economics, but I intuitively, I, I made the comment, how, how does the United States, and in this case, U.S., sure. how does the U.S. work without a strong middle class? Mm. I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know that it does. That's an assumption mm. I have. I think, I think things begin to fall apart. So, mm. so that's one, one avenue I would love to explore. Does democracy, does, does capitalism, uh, is it sustainable when a middle class is shrinking? And, and from a leadership perspective, here's the other, th- the other thought. I love what you just said. What type of leadership works above the noise? The noise mm. of, at least in the States, Fox News or CNN and the warring factions and the billions of mm. dollars that are being spent to influence others, regardless of who is elected, what, what type of leadership works above that mm. to be effective, to help us, us advance? Because it's very easy for us to default into a, in the United States, a Republican versus Democrat debate. But there's indicators that the system is unhealthy, that the system is not achieving the results we want it to. So let's start with the middle class. I'd love to hear your opinion there. But then also, let's explore that. What type of leadership works above or is appropriate in this context to move us forward? Because it feels like many aspects of the system are stuck hmm. so there are two big issues there but yeah. the, on the first mike mike I, real quick real quick if yeah. you could fix those for us on this podcast right now that'd be great. <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll get a lot of listens with yeah. your wisdom here <laughs> so look i've been fortunate i lived for um 15 years of my life in countries where the middle class was emerging So these were countries like Indonesia, like the uh, Republic of Egypt, where the middle classes were fundamentally growing and importantly so, because within the structure of global capitalism, middle classes are an essential, as as you've highlighted. The problem we have in some of the more advanced and developed economies is that they're being dislocated from any sense of influence and any sense of of perpetuity or of longevity. So you're right, and I think this is a challenge. And I, I'm not sure that the, the the prolongation of the of a class-based analysis will really help us. I think there are more fundamentals at play. And let me let me go to the second because it helps with that first. Sure. I think, you know, one of the best questions I've heard asked at the moment that 2020 is a pretty bad year. You know, generally speaking, in all sorts of ways. Yep. But when it finishes, when we get out of all this, what sort of world do we want to emerge into? Uh, and if we cannot take that opportunity, we're in, we're in a pickle. But when this finishes, when we come out of this pandemic, when we come out of this political populism, this polarization, what sort of world do we want? I'm very clear about the sort of world I'd like. And it's the sort of world you have to look then from my, my chair of leadership organization what sort of leaders do we want who are likely to to develop that so in order to answer the question what sort of world you want you have to really be clear about the nature of the world we've got how many of your politicians and mine scott talk about how quickly they want to return to normal wouldn't Mm -hmm. it be nice if we got back to normal i don't because the normal i experienced in 2019 was not a good place Uh. so we'd hope then we could define a future which was slightly different. 
slightly recast, recalibrated yep. for the needs of ordinary people. So in, a, in looking at where we're at, we've got leaders that, that don't seem to be able to cope, political leaders and some corporate leaders, but mainly political leaders, that don't seem to be able to cope with some of the mega changes taking place at pace. Mm. And what are these? There are many lists in many people's books, and you can go to the World Economic Forum to see the state of the world as we have it. But these, for me, come down to four main things that, we, that leaders don't seem to be able to cope with. And if we want to get better leadership, we have to help them in this area, whether we're from the academy as scholars, whether we're consultants or practitioners, or whether we're just role models as small scale, small town leaders like I've been in the past. So the first is that I think we have a widening gap. How many times have we heard over the pandemic, let the science lead? Yeah. But the gap between the science and political leaders is huge. And leaders who can't cope with the advances in knowledge, with new technologies, with new ideas, will not be effective leaders. Yes. We have health ministers who have no experience in health. We have transport ministers who never uh, have no expertise in transport. This is the, the, the problem of the modern age. So leaders have to find a way of relating to experts and they don't do it well at the moment. Mm. We can come back to how we can help them later. Secondly, we live in an age of, of disruptive technology, Yes, not technology that supports us. And some of your podcasts in the past that I listened to have talked about this. Yeah. So what, what disruption we have? We have huge disruption, mainly from social media and from the use and abuse of the internet. We have leadership that can't cope with that. Some of our main political leaders try to use social media and not very successfully, I have to say. But social media itself influences democracy. It challenges Wall Street journals it, it, and Wall Street uh, capital numbers. I think we have a world in which complexity has removed linearity mm. in problem solving. So we no longer can go in a straight line at all. Thirdly, you mentioned this a minute ago, and I think it's hugely important. We have a total corruption of some of our simplest systems, which we mm. expected would provide answers to some of our problems. So in 2007, 2008, the financial crisis was an example of a failure of the financial system to look after our debt, to look after our needs, our mortgages, our aspirations. The system didn't work. Health systems in 2020 have failed to deliver solutions to the pandemic or anticipate them. There yeah. are many other systems we can. So we live in a, in a, in a world in which systems and organisations are simply not fit for purpose. Yep. And the consequence of that, Scott, is that the users of those systems, the people who depend on them, start distrusting them. So it's what happens is that we don't trust the systems even if they're okay, yep. we don't trust them anymore. So the banks let us down in 2007. I don't trust them now in 2020. Mm. I don't trust the banks at all. I worry about my, my security and my pension, my family and so forth yes. in a way that I didn't before. I took, I took the banking system, the financial system, the regulated systems that we developed almost for granted. And the final comment, and I, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm going on too much. Oh, this is this is Sorry. wonderful. This is wonderful. I, 
I'm I'm sitting here listening intently because I love so, it. I love it. So the final, I think, big thing that's happened is change itself. So we're quite used to change and the management of change. You know, someone said to me recently, you know what a leader does, Mike? A leader makes sense of things uh -huh. and a leader manages change. They do those two things. And if they're a really good leader, they make good sense for their followers and they manage the change in a productive and constructive way. But look at the nature. Of, it's not change that matters to me anymore. I think it's the pace of change. Mm. There's a, a fascinating book by a German sociologist called Rosa, Harmut Rosa, called Social Acceleration, who says, look, what's happening is that change is accelerating yeah. so that we have such complexity now and you can't manage something that's continually moving. So when you go back to those, this is a very simplistic view of the world, but if you go back to my assessment that there's a gap between leadership and science, yes, there's a problem with disruptive technologies that we can't seem to solve. Yeah. We have a corruption of our basic systems that let us down, yeah. and we have the pace of change at such a rate of knots. So what sort of leaders will make sense of all that is the question that you, you pose. I think it's, uh, it's got a lot to do with knowledge. It's got a lot to do with the way the academy has to recalibrate itself to support leaders on lifelong learning and continuous professional development. A leader that becomes a leader shouldn't stop learning. They should continually be humble enough to say, I need help. They should surround themselves with neutral, objective evidence. And even then it'll be hard. But at the moment, we don't. We have leaders that are more interested in, in propagating their, their length as leaders, in single-minded sources of power, power relationships, and who, generally speaking, are not interested in some of the core values that I think we are as a society. And that's when you get into much more philosophical areas. But, you know, if we do have a gap between the science and decisions, we've got a problem. Yeah. Yep. I, I think that the type of leadership we need has got to be agile, it's got to be humble, and it's got to embrace what my interest is in social capital. It's got to embrace the effective functional of personal relations between people. Yeah. And it's got to be humble enough to look around for solutions and not be arrogant enough to think that it has them all and not, not derive solutions from ideology either. You mentioned earlier in our conversation the the polarization between the Demo the Democrats and the Republicans in the United States. And we might use a parallel between the Conservatives and Labour in, in the UK political system. Actually, at the fringes, this is a spectrum, a continuous spectrum. Yes. yes. And, you know, those on the left of the Republicans are far to the right of those on the right of the Democrats and so forth. We just need to remove the, the tribalism at that yes. level and focus more on the needs of our neighborhoods and communities. And, and it's such an interesting aspect of human nature, what you just mentioned, the, the tribalism, mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. from the beginning of time, we have the other. And, yeah. and, and we fail as human beings to see uh, the we at times. I think some mm -hmm. leaders do see the we and, and make decisions mm -hmm. based on the we, but it's, it's a struggle. I, I don't know that, that academia has kept pace as well. And this no. is my, my personal opinion, but I don't know that we are remaining relevant in this conversation. 
Because I think, mm. I think to your point, if an academic institution was a place of lifelong learning where mm. individuals can go to be on the cutting edge of where what the, even just the four elements you just described mm. if became that, that space for someone over the course of their life to keep their knowledge, skills, and abilities on the cutting edge. I believe we have to reframe, rethink, and reimagine the role of higher education mm-hmm. and, and being an agent of change and, and helping. Because I think too often we're in a mindset of, well, we have these people for four years and then they leave. And oh, we've got a few graduate students and then they leave. And then we ask them for money (laughs) and invite them to reunions. We don't invite them back to engage, learn, explore, and continue their evolution. Because as you said, humility, it's required. It's absolutely Mm. required because there's so much to have a command of. We had the head of global innovation for KPMG. His name is Stephen Hill. He spoke at John Mm. Carroll, my university, a few weeks ago. Mm. He calls it clock speed. He said the clock speed of change is increasing at a rapid, rapid pace. And mm. we, we even move from, say, cloud computing and analytics yeah. in a small window of time to now artificial intelligence to then next will be quantum computing. And these, these spaces of rapid change and, and transformational change are decreasing and decreasing and decreasing, mm. right? Mm. Mm. And... And every one of these technologies enabling disruption, uh, they're, they're like any, any other tool humans have invented. There's a shadow side and it can be weaponized. Like we've seen yeah. social media yeah, yeah. be weaponized. Yeah. Like we will see artificial intelligence be weaponized for the use, for the use by bad actors, right? Mm, mm, mm. So how does the ILA, we have a conference coming up. We have yeah. a conference. Mm. It's the first digital conference that ILA has ever, ever hosted. Uh, incredible organization doing really, really good work. I love your four pillars. I love those because they're, mm. they're, they help us make sense of, of what's happening. They're some of mm. the big pieces of the dialogue. They probably, of course, are not everything by any stretch mm. of the imagination. But what's your vision when you think about the ILA? How does ILA be a part of that solution and sparking that dialogue? So as you know, Scott, um, as well as I, the, the ILA is is based upon a whole set of principles and fundamental values, which which matter to members and matter to the twenty year history and the gestation of the organisation. This is quite an astonishing organisation, whose purpose and function is is admirable. It's not based upon the propagation of tribalism that we talked about. It's based upon simple. A simplicity that actually leadership in our complex societies can help create mm. a better world, can help create more security for families in uh, and neighborhoods. And that's if you look at our mission statement now, it's very, very simple. It's about that. It's working for a better world. And we don't even define a better world because it's it's a banal sort to define what a better world is. We know it is. We we can emotionally feel it. Yeah. So the the, the one major event a year of the many that's significant for ILA is its global conference. And you know, this normally takes place around 12, 1500 people assemble, which by itself is a, an astonishing grouping of people. Yes. All driven by this need to inquire, this continuous learning and this humility. 
and wanting desperately to share practice and share good their uh, share and learn but this year we've we're challenged we would have been in san francisco the leadership at the edge because we see the edginess of our contemporary uh, context as we've been discussing and we can't do that so instead of feeling sorry and going into a corner and weeping we decided to take to take the opportunity and continue in the tradition of ILA to just be positive so yeah. we're doing two things one is we're going virtual yep. we're not we're not being hybrid we're not trying to be clever we're just going to go online we're going to say we have a technology that can be mobilized positively so we're going to do that Good. We're going to go live, so we're not going to stage manage this. It's not going to be studio created. It's going to have the same opportunity for imperfections, which is how we learn. Yep. And so a live digital event, which will be more accessible to more people globally than ever before. People won't have to travel, won't have to burn up carbon problems in coming to San Francisco. Is We're going to miss the serendipitous bumping into each other in the <laughs> corridors, that's going to be desperate. We're missing that all the time. Yeah. But, you know, we're hoping that we have three or 4,000 people from around the world. We have registrations in excess of 1,000 already from 47 different countries already. And this is a global conversation, the like of which we couldn't have expected yes. without the lockdown, without the closures. So it's converting the, the misery of lockdown into the potential of new conversations and new social interconnections. The We have an amazing group of plenaries, as I'm sure you see. We don't have to bore oh, yeah. your listeners with that because they can go. When they register to, to come, they'll see who they are, Yes, uh, including world leaders fighting our pandemic through to world leaders fighting for the preservation of our democratic systems and for the rights of many in the less less privileged countries of the world. And we have whole strands of discussions about the quality of PhD supervision, of uh, continuous professional development, the role of the academy. We mm. have a strands looking at business and at leadership, the power of purpose, the focus of uh, effective leadership of small teams as well as large teams. It's an amazing collection of things. And we also are looking at peace which I'm very pleased about personally. So we're promoting a lot of discussion on the leadership for peace, on how leaders can focus their attention, the importance of peacefulness as a precondition for progress, as a precondition for fighting pandemics, for improving the, the wealth. This year is a couple of years after we signed up to the Sustainable Development Goals. They're almost invisible in the media. Discussions. And yet these are a sign up by the civilized world for civilized conditions for all people. Yeah. When you look at the sustainable development goals, it is to our shame that they've slipped off our agenda yeah. in our race for, uh, for, for, for other goals. And so I'm hoping that, you know, in, in between the many sessions which will stimulate and provoke, that we're reminding each other that there's a purpose to our concern about leadership. It's not about how well we feel. It's how, how much good we can project, how much improvement we can make for the lives of ordinary people. It's, it's going to be an amazing conference. You have to be there and your listeners have to be there. And uh, 
we're going to help them be there if if they're still if they've missed the early days lower fee just get in touch with me and i can i can give them an advantage uh, and a discount but we want everybody there <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it and i love the mindset you know it it's for for each each individual uh, you know how do we how do we reframe and for organizations how do we reframe and how do we see the potential see the potential opportunity in this difficult time and if ILA could use this this experience to connect with three or four thousand people, what an incredible opportunity to to build awareness, promote education, and begin that movement. I think it's wonderful. Mike Hardy, Dr. Hardy, anything else on your mind right now? Because we're we're about ready to kind of close things down. Anything else you want to touch on or highlight? No, I've I've really enjoyed this. I'm I apologize in in advance. Well I can't in advance, but after the <laughs> fact for talking too much, I normally do. You know, the reason that I love working with the ILA is because they've because there are so many good people yeah. that have so many positive thinkings. And we live in a world where culture can be positive or negative, where mm where we have good and bad leaders. But generally speaking, I'm now in a community that cares about change for the better. Uh, and that's a good community to be in, you know, yes. because there's so many problems out there of communities of interest which are not focused on the, the greater good. And But this one is, and it's been a pleasure and a privilege to, to be associated. And I thank you for the early conversation. Yes, yes. You who recruited me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this funny organization. I thought, what am I doing? So, uh, but, and just a final word for your listeners, um, and I know you have many, the staff in the ILA are yeah. just astonishing heroes because there's you and I, we have our day jobs, we have our world and our passions, we have our families, but our staff just do an amazing job. We have a tiny staff for the amount of noise they make. Yes. And uh, I just always want to take opportunity to celebrate the fact that we have them. And yes. it's their work that is going to lead to the amazing conference next month. Well, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, Deborah, Shelley, Sin, uh, three of which have been there for, for years and helped steer that. And, and, and Bridget, who is the oh, master. Sure. Oh, of well, conference. you are. So, thank you for that yeah, because yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. I mean, yeah. uh, when you think about the conference and now her new, her new expertise in the in the digital realm. <laughs> and we have Megan. I can't say enough about them. We yeah. could have spent the whole hour talking about their abilities and their competence, their enthusiasm, their passions. And here we are. We we left it right till the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, when they listen. They'll, they'll, they'll hear it. Mike, I always close these out with, with a quick question just about what you're reading, what you're streaming, what you're listening to. Is there anything that's on your desk right now that stands out for you that listeners might be interested in? Well, I'm just, I've just finished Amy Chua's book. Amy okay. Chua is a, a, um, a book called Political Tribes that looks ah. at group instinct and the fate of nations. Amy's one of your academics. She's a She's at Harvard. Oh, sorry, at the Yale Law School. Okay, and uh, it's it's a really good read. Political mm -hmm. tribes. So she talks about a lot of the things that I've observed in my travels that humans love to belong, mm. and that that is a good thing, and it creates challenges. Yes, because by belonging we become inclusive, and we become uh, self sort of resilient. 
but in many parts of the world, belonging to one thing excludes people. Yes. This other. So Amy talks about uh, the world in, framed around this notion of political tribes. So that's a great read. And um, I, I rarely recommend books so strongly as that. And, well, I will uh, put it. I will put it in the show notes. I, I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks, uh, Mike, at ILA. We will have a great experience, and I just love that vision of thousands of people gathering. I think it's a wonderful one. Yeah. For those of you who are listening, you will be able to find out how to get involved, how to get engaged by checking the show notes. We will have everything you need to know there. Please register. Please sign up. Join us. Join the conversation. And then more important, act and then help in your community and make a difference in your space and practice the activity of leading others. Dr. Hardy, thank you, sir. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Scott. Goodbye. I normally reserve this segment as a time to reflect on the conversation. And and that conversation with, with Mike Hardy was just a lot of fun. Obviously, he is a gentleman who has had incredible experiences around the globe, done some really wonderful work in the process, and is an individual who is leading. I also want to just reflect on the ILA, the International Leadership Association. We mentioned this organization a few different times. Their global conference is coming up. You can learn more in the show notes. But as I was reflecting on the ILA, it has been my professional home for 15 plus years. It's an incredible organization. Many of the guests who have been on Phronesis are members of the ILA. So if you're unfamiliar, if you have not attended, if you haven't been, uh, please do yourself a favor. Connect, attend, and explore and engage with people like Mike and other guests, Ron Riggio, Dave Rush, Susan Comavez, Julie Owen, John Dugan, the list goes on of people you just might bump into. Be well, everyone. Take care. As always, thanks for listening in. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.